welcome to another episode of Sociable Socialism. I'm Joe Loud Guy. Today we are going to be covering uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, and Barack Obama, uh, their similarities, and uh, a book that I have in front of me uh, from the distant past of 2009. Uh, it is, it's interesting, uh, to say the least. Uh, it is... The deranged fever dream of someone who saw similarities between Tony Blair and Barack Obama, but not in a way that I consider to be flattering, and that's coming from a left perspective, so uh, stay tuned. So we're back on a glorious Tuesday evening, and, uh, you know, it's been uh, it's pretty, pretty cool for me recently. Uh, the podcast doubled its listener count last week, uh, and that's, that's neat. That's pretty awesome. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in and uh, giving, me, uh, giving me a chance <laughs> to, to just listen to me ramble about uh, what, what goes through my head in the day. Um, it it uh, really makes me feel good, so thank you. And uh, I kind of had a weird moment last week during the debate where I was just trying to bother Pete Buttigieg because, of course, he's a botherable person. Uh, he's not uh, he's not good. He's the worst person in the race, and his uh, representation of the future is a grim one. You know, like, what his plan is, is going to destroy uh, any kind of political activism. Uh, And that's the exact reason he can't win, though. I mean, his message appeals to no one and nobody. And uh, we all pretty much hate him. He's just the worst. He he is a racist and uh, ultimately just another neoliberal uh, who is going to sell the working class out. And we have to see the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these uh, supposedly reputable publications try to, (laughs) like, ignore this fact. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, of course, is showing up everywhere now with ads because we can't get rid of him. He's just insisting upon being viewed by the public. Uh, But Pete Buttigieg's resilience in the face of this scandal is, is truly something to behold. And uh, I'll go into that more in, de- in detail in a second, but first, the story. Uh, I was on a Pete Buttigieg thread where he, if, if, you're, if you're on Twitter, you'll be familiar with this. He uh, said, focused, with a period at the end to let you know he's serious, with a picture of him with, like, lighting touching his face. And by the way, if you go back and look at recordings of that debate, and I encourage you to look at recordings, don't like watch it, but look at recordings of the debate. If you go back and look, every moment, even when the camera's not on him, like when the camera is on, let's say, Cory Booker, or Clayton Klobuchar is answering a question, uh, if you can stomach to turn away from them, because I know they're captivating, and look at Pete Buttigieg, you'll see that he is, like, catching a pose every time on camera. In fact, the realest moment of the night was when Tulsi Gabbard just, like, nuked him. And nobody went after him the way that they should. Honestly, Bernie should have gone after him uh, on the differences between what they did as mayors, on the fact that in his brief career, 
Pete Buttigieg has already proven himself to if he if he has any ideology at all, his ideology is one of deep seated racism. And uh, I'm gonna play a clip from the Majority Report later, just so that you can like get a a feel. Uh, for what I'm getting at. Like, the, the frame of mind you'd have to be in to be a person like Pete Buttigieg and, and do what he's done. Uh, but I'm on this thread. He says focused, and I decide that I'm going to troll him a bit before the debate starts. And what I do is I say, I hope you get body slammed by your record tonight, Sneaky Pete. And then I did a gif of a sumo wrestler uh, slamming somebody. Now, anybody who has any ability to read context would be able to see that and know that it is not I mean it's it's absurd right like I mean that's not in any way uh an, an uh, offensive violent attack it's just not uh harassment it's just a benign tweet uh your record can't harm you you know uh it's not a real thing it's it's abstract and so I mean, it is a real thing, but again, it can't physically come onto a stage and body slam you. The it's 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 crazy. I have to explain this because I got banned uh, for twelve hours when that happened. Uh, it happened almost instantly. I got banned, and I was able to post uh, messages to the chat group I'm in, uh, but I wasn't able to tweet uh, during the entirety of the debate. So I was taken out of. Uh, what I was really looking forward to, which was just jumping on threads where people were saying dumb shit and just being able to, like, troll. Uh, which is a small thing that I enjoy. It's how I, uh, you know, if, if even just one neoliberal or dumb conservative person doesn't walk away, you know, top of their game, that's a small joy. You know, and it helps, you know, you feel like you're a, a part of the debate itself because it's, it's an event, right? And you're participating in it. Post tweets go up, and, and and I was just looking forward to that. So that got taken from me by Pete Buttigieg for what it was obviously an innocuous comment that didn't mean anything. So I appealed it because I'm stubborn. And they told me right out the gate, uh, appeals can take days, A, and, you know, obviously there's no guarantee. And so I decided I wanted to appeal anyway because I'm stubborn, and I really cannot fathom having to swallow... Uh, my pride on that because I didn't say anything that was wrong. I I was just making a joke, and the idea that I should be censored over that joke is silly to me. It's dumb, and I refuse to accept that. And uh, they denied my appeal, so it literally put me in a situation where I had to delete the tweet in order to get back onto Twitter. Because at the point at which I deleted the tweet, uh, that was when the timer started. It wasn't like I could just wait it out. I had to do this. So I did it because I'm not going to lose my Twitter profile over this. But wow. I mean, wow, right? Like, like what a complete robbery of my agency on this. This is absurd. He's running for president. Like, And, you're, and also, also, and I have a screenshot of this, uh, I got thanked by Twitter for reporting myself. Uh, so... It was just this automated reaction to a certain, you know, words on a list being said in a certain format. And I got banned and then automatically denied. So it wasn't even like it went anywhere. You know, either it went to a computer that did it instantly or it went to a person that, you know, I mean, clearly Twitter knows who its audience is, you know. And uh, 
By that I mean uh, the money, the moneyed interest audience. They they know who they have to kiss up to uh, to get favorable le- legislation taken care of. If they want to keep performing the way that they do, they know that the uh, liberals uh, in power right now will not shake up the way Twitter operates through legislation, or maybe take control of it altogether, as I would think the the preferred option is to just uh, end its autonomy as a private company and treat it sort of like uh, either the DMV or the post office in the sense that it's like a utility agency, you know? Like, people use it as a town square to communicate. Uh, You have laws, you know, that actually enforce uh, things like hate speech, you know, so we don't see all these Nazis sticking around all the time. And, of course, the argument I always hear from the half-witted is that aren't you afraid that if we start banning these people uh, from Twitter that they'll just find an excuse to ban us when they get power. And, you know, it's used both ways as a precedent. The fact is, it happens to the left already all the time, as I am proof of. I didn't say anything. It was just the fact that I was trying to troll Pete Buttigieg and I got banned. Uh, It didn't require... It wasn't because we went after Steven Crowder one time. Like, he can say pretty much anything he wants, any kind of incitement, and it's treated as an opinion. I say one thing about Pete Buttigieg and I get banned. Like, that is the double standard we're talking about. And that double standard is not prevented by saying we shouldn't kick the right-wingers off of Twitter. That double standard uh, is the result of giving the right-wing their framing on this issue. They should not be allowed to have a channel on which they can spread hate speech. It's a form of incitement. It's a form of stochastic terrorism. So the very idea that we even indulge the right wing on Twitter is already a compromise that's very dangerous. Like, you can definitely uh, generate enough uh, incitement from a tweet just by spreading fake news, honestly. you can. You, it's entirely possible. And that is kind of like yelling fire in a crowded theater, you know? I mean, it, it has the same result. People panic and they act irrationally. Again, if you make a tweet uh, that's clearly designed uh, to stoke racist racist reaction, like a reactionary, violent, uh, like, uh, Ilhan Omar is anything insert, uh, secretly a part of a plot to destroy Israel here. And you will get somebody threatening to kill her. Like you, she already has to deal with it all the time, but saying something like that is not an opinion. It is a form of incitement. It's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. You're doing it and it has consequences. Whether or not you're doing it maliciously is inconsequential to the consequences. Like, you can't just say, oh, I didn't mean, as Ben Shapiro does, uh, for these things to happen, or just sort of deny it as if it's unrelated, even though it clearly is. Like, there's a correlation between uh, alt-right shooters, these recent string of uh, white nationalist uh, violent terrorists, uh, and his rhetoric. Uh, they watch his channels like as their number one thing like he is a a clear example of somebody that shouldn't have a platform because he is actively causing harm to the community through his incitement uh so to use i guess what i want to say is i don't want the debate uh to be centered on should we knock the right wing off twitter under fear that it will lead to the left being censored I think that's a silly debate. I think what we need to debate is what is the most humane and ethical way to conduct ourselves as a society. 
and have that be like the guiding light on any in any way whether we're talking about like the internet and rights that go on the internet uh, such as net neutrality uh, whether or not we're talking about nationalizing all industries as i think we should pursue uh, just because I, I think putting something under the federal government, as much as people like to claim that the government is somehow inefficient and worse, as we'll get, also get through later, um, as much as people like to claim that, uh, it's actually clearly inefficient under capitalism as well. In fact, more inefficient because you have a rapacious for-profit middleman. And the fact that they need to turn a profit means they are absolutely guaranteed to worsen care in whatever industry it is. Like, they will try to cut corners in whatever way they can. Now, the idea that this causes innovation, in my mind, is is foolhardy. It's silly. I, I think what it, co- what it incentivizes more than innovation is corner cutting and how to change the rules to better benefit your business model so you can save money. Uh, and there's clear evidence for that. So enough with the what-ifs, which is what I've been doing this whole time on my debate with myself, about whether or not... Uh, it is smart uh, to nationalize industries. It is at least as inefficient as the, uh, or at least as efficient as the private industry and usually more efficient. Uh, And in the same way, Twitter should be policed in this uh, manner. It should have a responsible, clear code of conduct that is followed. And if it was seriously, like, if we were using taxpayer dollars to make it a job for people to regularly with breaks and benefits and a high pay, like, this is the thing, is that if we're going to have, like, a wage-based economy, uh, this is, like, we would have to have universal jobs guarantee, and this could easily be one of them. Uh, And it would result in Twitter not being the cesspool that it is. And the idea that this would have some kind of latent bias that would skew again twitter already has a bias it went after me and it leaves up people like steven crowder you know because they pull in a lot of traffic a and b it doesn't matter that they're causing incitement you know it, it doesn't matter if you're doing that what matters is if you question power and steven crowder does not do that uh so pete Buttigieg getting me banned really earned my ire and i'm glad that he got his ass beat to uh, that debate i'm sure if you're uh any kind of like progressive left head and you listen to media besides me, you've already gone over someone's thoughts on the debate. So I will spare you uh, any kind of long diatribe given that we're almost a week removed. Uh, I intended to post that uh, night, but of course I was banned. So I didn't think sharing on Twitter was a, you know, (laughs) or at least I didn't think producing an episode that I couldn't share on Twitter was a smart move uh, because I use it just to spread the message. Um, But uh, after that, you know, uh, we went back to our regular Tuesday schedule, and here we are. And uh, that was what I did last week, as I got banned by Pete Buttigieg for a seemingly harmless comment. And the sooner this guy loses, the better. Uh, that debate was, I think, a clear indicator that he can't take criticism. Uh, because Tulsi Gabbard, and again, she didn't attack him the way that I wanted, but she did attack him. Uh, on how he would continue regime change wars. She mentioned that he said he would invade Mexico, which was true. I saw an article go up actually during the debate too, which was, I, you know, that's awesome that people were immediately saying, yeah, he said this. He wants to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartel. And the very fact that that thought would even occur to him is insanity. It's absolute insanity. Now, again, I would like to attack him for what he did as mayor, of his uh, quiet town that he just sort of blew up. I mean, there's an article that TYT Investigates released today, which is damning. It was absolutely damning. I, I, I tried to spread it a bit 
I didn't see very many likes go to it. It's actually uh, pretty stunning how transparent this shit was. Uh, so uh, to pull it up now, uh, and again, this is uh, TYT Investigates. Uh, so it's new documents raise questions about Buttigieg's ouster of black police chief. Uh, so newly uh, released documents obtained by the Young Turks appeared to conflict with some of Pete Buttigieg's public remarks about secret South Bend police tapes and his controversial demotion of the city's first black police chief in March 2012, just months into his tenure as mayor. Buttigieg's presidential com campaign, having reviewed the documents, maintains that they are consistent with Buttigieg's statements. The campaign also says that Buttigieg was not involved in the litigation that generated the documents and that he, quote, made sure he wasn't looking at that material, end quote, to comply with legal restrictions on the document secrecy. Now, the new documents include a 2013 deposition given by Mike Schumel, Buttigieg's presidential campaign manager, who is also his mayoral chief of staff. The city released redacted versions of Schumel's deposition and other documents in response to public record requests by TYT. Uh, three months after taking office, Buttigieg demoted Chief Beryl Boykins for his handling of secret police phone recordings, which came under investigation by federal officials. Buttigieg also fired Karen DePape, the police employee who heard the recordings, and transferred some to, some to cassette tapes at Boykin's request. TYT recently revealed that secret legal documents describing the recorded calls chronicle a month-long effort in 2012 by white police officers to use Buttigieg's donors to oust Boykin's once Buttigieg took office as mayor. One officer is quoted saying, quote, it will be a fun time when all white people are in charge, end quote. That remark and all mentions of the plan have been redacted by city attorneys in their release of De Pape's January 2012 officer's report. And her responses to the city's 2013 interrogatories related to her wrongful termination suit. The city attorneys cited a court order banning release of information about the tape's contents. This is how far he has had to go to bury this. This is some damning stuff right here. And I have no doubt that he wouldn't be burying it if it wasn't true. The idea that this is false, like, again, the idea that people want to spread, they're like, oh, they're just trying to rake up muck on him. This is not a tiny amount of muck. This is a lot of muck. This is a conspiracy to oust a black police chief by racists for racist purposes quoted as saying it will be a fun time when all white people are in charge so there was a clear goal here this is the very definition of institutional racism it's abhorrent and this man is a top contender to be the president in the democratic party are you insane we can do better than this people we can do a million times better than this the fact that he is so young and still so evil to like plan and plot out this is it, it, it's depressing it, it's like looking at the future and seeing the like mad max hellscape because that is his world because he will destroy society through the same terrible policies that we've already experienced and that have put us in the situation that gave us trump and he'll be he would be a step backwards from obama that's how bad Pete Buttigieg would be. And Obama was not good, as he has also been proving recently. Obama recently said that he will help stop Bernie, basically. That's the gist of it. The actual quote, let me pull it up for you. So the actual quote is from an article written by The Hill, which is not a, 
it, it they're not a bad publication, but they are not the far left by any stretch. They they probably are to the left of Vox, but definitely not like the Jacobin. You know, <laughs> like they're definitely a part of the establishment uh, in that respect. I think that Rising uh, with uh, Crystal Ball is a good show. That's the Hills sort of uh, version of TYT. And uh, I also think that Crystal Ball being friendly with both Yang, Tulsi, and Bernie, or all three, uh, is a calculation to get fans. <laughs> because those two really are not comparable with Bernie. And to compare them when she you know, knows so much and is friends with the people she's friends with, to me, speaks that she doesn't want to upset the, their, you know, supporters. And, of course, uh, that leads me to believe they're a little bit cynical. And if they're a little bit cynical, I guess I question Crystal Ball's motives. But for now, she's been pretty consistently right on a lot of things, and that's the Hill. Uh, so it's still worth looking into. But, again, it's definitely a part of the establishment. The Hill is not trying to upset the apple cart the way the Jacobin might be. Uh, and... According to The Hill, Obama privately said he would speak up to stop Sanders from becoming the Democratic nominee. I, I don't have to tell you how insane that is. President Barack Obama privately said he would speak up to stop Senator Bernie Sanders from beginning the Democratic presidential or becoming the Democratic presidential nominee, Politico reported on Tuesday. The former president reportedly said if Sanders held a strong lead in the Democratic primary, he would speak out to prevent him from becoming the nominee. A close advisor to Obama told Politico he could not confirm whether Obama would stand up against Sanders. He hasn't said that directly to me. And that's the quote, uh, or the advisor said. The only reason I'm hesitating at all is because, yeah, if Bernie were running away with it, I think maybe we would all have to say something, but I don't think that's likely. It's not happening. An Obama spokeswoman or person, when asked about his previous comments on Sanders, referred to the president's past comments that he would back whoever became the Democratic nominee. Look, we have a field of very accomplished, very serious and passionate and smart people who have a history of public service and whoever emerges from the primary process, I will work my tail off to make sure that they are the next president, Obama said earlier this month, according to his spokesperson. Obama has stayed quiet throughout the campaign about which candidate he would support, but has offered to meet with any candidate in the primary and has given advice to those who meet with him, according to the news outlet. A close advisor told Politico that I can't even imagine with this field how bad it would have to be for him to say something, referring to Obama speaking out against a candidate. And again, this guy is not our friend. Like, I hope that this is imparted to you, that he would dare to come out in the middle of a primary when the message, by the way, according to his appointee, because he's the guy that got Tom Perez in as the DNC chair, that was all Obama's influence. So thank you for that. Tom Perez is terrible, Barack Obama. He's one of the worst DNC chairs of all time or the best, depending on what you think that job's role is in terms of squashing progressive policies and any kind of change in the party. They've been fighting it tooth and nail. Uh, so Barack Obama now wants to come out and say after this stupid unity where they literally went on a unity tour they literally went on tom perez went on a unity tour with bernie it was supposed to be a medicare for all tour and tom perez like co-opted it by saying they were going to work together and talking about affordable health care as a way to try to defang medicare for all back in the early stages i mean it it it's horrifying that was his guy he put tom perez in there and now now he has the audacity to come out and say, yeah, I'd go come out against Sanders. It's like, again, you know he's not in Sanders' camp. 
especially because he was president. Barack Obama was president, and he didn't govern the way a Sanders would by a stre- any stretch of the imagination. He governed the way a Hillary Clinton would. He governed the way a Bill Clinton would. He governed the way an Al Gore would. Maybe even to the right of Al Gore, frankly, on environmental policy. Like, it, it, it's disgusting how this guy was te- selling us on hope and change and now wants to come out and, and scold us. He's been scolding the left, too. He's also been saying uh, we shouldn't go too far left. We shouldn't go too far left. This is from the most recent Democratic president. I mean, what are we talking about here? Which side are you on, right? This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. He needs to go away. This is reminding me of Hillary Clinton, frankly, where every time she comes out of hiding to say something, people hate her more. It's just like that. Like, go back into hiding, Obama, because you're, frankly, you're not helping any, uh, in, in any way to make the dialogue productive to the movement, and you're not helping your side either. You're just making yourself look more like a douche, and I guess I don't really want to think that way about you. It, it, believe it or not, as much as you're like a war criminal... I, I still don't actively want to, like, hate you to the same degree that I hate, I don't know, John Bolton. Like, I still, I guess, wanted to feel like there's some measure of professionalism here. I, I don't know. I don't know what I wanted to feel. Because, frankly, at this point, I don't see an argument why we shouldn't try you as a war criminal. I really don't. Uh, you're clearly proving that you're going to fight against the progressive left. And if you fight against the progressive left, if you try to undemocratically influence the Democratic nominee... I mean, what else am I supposed to take that as? That's a Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi move. That's a problem, man. That's a real problem. And we want to primary them. Like, you need to shut the hell up, man. Again, you're a war criminal. Stop poking the bear. Because there are people in the government far more dangerous actively that I would rather go up against than you. But, man, if you're going to force it, you're going to lose. Like, you don't get it. You disappointed everybody as president. You don't have that deep of a bench. And the more you talk and reveal yourself to have this very right-wing, frankly, ideology, and the more you back right-wing horses in this race, the more you're going to find that the left does not like you and the center will stop to like you. The center doesn't like the right at, at all. It's, it, they're not popular. It's not like the center has some fabled love for the right. The only people who love the right wing are Jake Tapper and the other 8% wealthy people that govern the media. You know, they're the ones that always give them uh, more time to talk, that invite on people like Richard Spencer to regular segments but won't invite on like a Noam Chomsky, as if there's even a comparison between the two in terms of intellect or in terms of what they'd have to contribute to a conversation. I mean, it's absurd. And uh, thank you, Obama. You know, thanks. Thanks, Obama. It's, it's really, thank you. It, it's great when you try to shove yourself into the conversation in the most defensively uh, unprogressive way possible after demonstrating yourself to not be progressive at all, but to be, by your own estimation, a moderate Republican. Uh, so I promised that I would get into a funny book uh, this episode, and this is from 2009. And I say funny very, very lightly because it, it would not have amused me uh, at all even just six months ago. But it happened to occur to me that um, back when I was in a bookstore in 2009, right after Obama had been elected, I was in the political section. I remember seeing like uh, a book of like Glenn Beck's there. So that's how I knew the year. And I remember reading this cover that uh, was like this excerpt 
that went on to talk about how Barack Obama was a lot like Tony Blair. And at the time, I thought it was just right-wing sour grapes. Turns out I was right. But uh, it also was an interesting observation to liken Barack Obama to Tony Blair. So I thought about that, uh, and I was like, wow, he really is like Tony Blair. And uh, Tony Blair, again, war criminal, aided and abetted the Iraq invasion. Excuse me. And uh, I decided to Google it. I decided to Google this phrase that I recalled to see what it was about. And what I found is fascinating. Uh, the book title is called Welcome to Obamaland. I have seen your future and it doesn't work by James Dellingpool, journalist and author of How to Be Right. So right out the gate, I now realize why it was next to that Glenn Beck novel. Uh, this is a right-wingers excerpt. And oh boy, oh boy. I mean, this is this is really fascinating, frankly. I'm going to read this opening excerpt that I have here to you. But I think it's worth noting that, man, they were crazy before. Like, the idea that Obama just set them off is insane. No, these people have been insane for a very, very long time. And it just feels like we only recently realized, like, how debunked everything they believe is. I'm not even just talking about like their obvious racial uh, undertones. Like that stuff is like we acknowledge <laughs> that you're a racist cult. Like we get that. But also their economic viewpoints, which I, I guess at the time, as I'm about to show you, I believe some of this crap. Uh, so here's a quote from the book. Uh, far more culpable... Nope, nah, let's skip that part. In a world where, thanks to moral relativism, parentheses, one of the left's not-so-secret weapons, end parentheses. Isn't that fascinating? Back in 2009, they were still trying to do the uh, moral... Uh, the This sort of moral relativism... Uh, what do they, they call it? Uh, Marxist? Cultural Marxism? They were still trying to do that. They didn't call it that back then. But it was still a thing back in 2009. It's right here in this book. In a world where, thanks to moral relativism, everyone believes whatever weird variant of reality they want to believe. Again, cultural Marxism. No one is going to thank you for speaking the truth. Uh, to be a right-wing libertarian in those early days of the Blair uh, prime ministership uh, was to feel rather as many of you reading this book must feel now. No commas there. You know you're right, comma, damn it. Your political philosophy is the most honest. It's about how the world is rather than how it ought to be. Again, a clearly debunkable lie. It actually isn't about how the world is or ought to be. It is a religion. It is, you, you say the world is this way, and therefore it should be this way. And you get upset, actually, that the world doesn't reflect that. Nothing you guys believe is actually borne out in data. Just keep that in mind. The idea that if we just deregulate enough, that would save everything, has been proven false countless times. Like, you want to go to a place that has no regulation, go to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You know what they don't have there? Some basic things they don't have? They don't have toiletries. Like, they don't have working sewers because the free market does not provide sewers. There's no benefit to doing sewage. It isn't something you can do for cost. The rich people will pay for it, but the poor will just shit in the streets. You just won't get it. You'll just have shit streets everywhere. That's the result of not having government aid. That's your other end of the spectrum. So the idea that your political philosophy has any weight 
has been completely debunked. But at the time, that kind of an argument probably would have, like, it would have appealed to me. I was like, yeah, I guess libertarianism, you know, they have some right, right ideas. But, the, you know, as I just pointed out, is a very clear contradiction right there. Uh, they cl- uh, Going back to where he was in the book, uh, it is the most pragmatic, the one most effectively proven by precedent, and the one best guaranteed to make the world a better place for everyone. Problem is, it just doesn't fit in with the prevailing fashion. And in politics, unfortunately, fashion counts for rather more than integrity or ideology. You've seen this in spades. Excuse the expression. Wink. Oh, God. With Barack Obama whom some of us think is far more style than substance, a man of self-serving gestures rather than selfless genius, of soaring speeches rather than serious statementship, of sneaking socialism, which is what you're about to get, rather than economic sobriety, and a man your press is crowned with a laurel wreath. In reverence of the Roman tradition, your press is trotted behind Obama's conquering chariot. This is just a bunch of racist epitaphs right here. Moving right along, in Britain, we'd seen this before with Tony Blair, another smiling candidate speaking a new language who convinced us all, or far too many of us, that he wasn't a dangerous socialist, not like the ones we kept out of power by electing Margaret Thatcher and John Major. Oh, God, vomit at that sentence. The popularity ratings Blair enjoyed at his peak were the highest of any post-war prime minister, higher than Thatcher, higher than Winston Churchill. Nothing could touch him. Again, you'd think that would say, and by the way, Tony Blair, again, is a war criminal who should be prosecuted, but you'd think that that would say that this is not reflecting the way the world as it is or how it could be. You'd say that this kind of contradicts everything you just said, wouldn't you? That the world is actually reflecting that what you believe is stupid. But anyway, nothing could touch him. Not claims that he had taken party political donations for business favors, not his grotesque mishandling of a serious foot-and-mouth outbreak, not the lamentable folly of the Millennium Dome, not the venality and incompetence of his ministers, not his Chancellor Gordon Brown's growing taxes, not his baffling failure to achieve a single one of his targets on welfare reform, blah, 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 again, just stupid, dumb, insaneness. If it is... If it promised it was going to do something, then the electorate believed it, notwithstanding an increasingly long list of promises unfulfilled. Uh, Oh, wait, no, actually, here's hospital waiting lists. Yeah, that's right, and you wonder why Britain comes so low in International Cancer Survival Rate League tables. That was back in 2009, or child literacy. So, okay, I guess uh, that's another big thing. Like, he did defund uh, the uh, English, or failed to fund would be a better way to describe it. I don't like the idea of defunded but failing to provide adequate funding uh, for Britain's healthcare system, which is something Jeremy Corbyn has promised to reverse. Is why Jeremy Corbyn would be such a sea change over there, just as Bernie would be over here. Uh, so moving on past the rest of this guy's, uh, again, racist, crazy, socialist, hateful fantasies, uh, as, the one, as one who did see it coming, I find it hard to summon much sympathy. It's like Dr. Faustus complaining when, having been granted the power to enjoy his every earthly fantasy, the devil turns up at the end to steal away his soul. Jesus Christ. It's like the citizens of Hamlin complaining when, having welched on their deal with the Pied Piper, he lures all their children inside the mountain. You just want to give these guys a good shake, maybe a brisk slap on the cheeks for good measure, and say, did you think it was going to come? And it just cuts off there. Probably easy. Um, again, how did the nice guys, you know, like sweet, gentle, progressive Obama, fresh from the effort 
finishing school of Chicago machine politics get to be so nasty? Oh, Jesus. Uh, I know to some of you it will come as no surprise whatsoever that a left liberal president and a Congress run by the likes of Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi can do so many stupid, wrongheaded, unfair, and outright mean, bullying, and destructive things, but you'd be amazed by how many of your friends will have been expecting or at least hoping for something better than that. It was just the same in Britain when young, grinning, snappy-suited Tony Blair came into power on a bright day in June. Personal charm, plausible manner, excellent... Ah, here we go. This part is interesting. Uh, Without just jeopardizing the nation's prosperity, is the last part of the sentence, it goes, quote-unquote, excellence for all was Blair's stated aim. And in that nonsensical phrase, which sounds rather Obama-esque, doesn't it, was encapsulated the essential intellectual bankruptcy of the whole Blair project. Look, it's not possible for everyone and everything to be excellent, some of us wanted to protest. If you have winners, there are going to be losers. In order for something to be excellent, something else has to be less than excellent. Otherwise, the very concept of excellence is utterly meaningless. So, that is the author, who again, is a crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist, but he did stumble onto a truthism there about capitalism. Now, he goes on to use this as a reason for why, like, certain other people should be the ones winning. And uh, that's clearly, you know, we're not going to continue on past that point because we got to where I wanted to get. But I think that this observation back in 2009, even coming from someone who's clearly predisposed to feel this way, sort of this animosity, is quite interesting because that is how Blair penned himself. And that's also how Obama sold himself, is this idea that everybody could win. Like, that is the prevailing idea of neoliberalism in a nutshell, that all boats rise with a high tide. Like, the goal is to make everyone wealthy, you know, by allowing for free trade and just deregulating, and the market will basically regulate itself. We can let capital do its thing. We're responsible now, you know, and the wealth will trickle down to the lower class. You know, everybody will become wealthy, when in fact what actually happens is it's a race to the bottom. It's the exact opposite kind of incentives. Uh, You can see this in all of the jobs in manufacturing being shipped off to the lowest possible wage workers overseas. Uh, Any attempt to reform or provide health care to workers in this country is met with an immediate threat of shipping jobs overseas and just ending uh, the business altogether so you can put it in uh, a place that's infinitely cheaper because they don't have labor protections. They don't get paid a living wage. Or they do, and it just costs a lot less to live there. I mean, it. the fact of the matter is, when you can do that kind of a race to the bottom, when the workers have no autonomy in the company, and the company can just cut labor costs willy-nilly whenever it wants, uh, then the situation you have is exactly that. It's this lie of excellence for all. But it's not possible for everyone and everything to be excellent. That's not possible. That's why Bernie Sanders' plan is the best one, because everything's not going to be excellent for the billionaires. Everything's not going to be excellent for the millionaires. Everything will be excellent for literally everyone else on the planet. But the billionaire and millionaire class, they're not going to have a great time. Like, he's at least honest about it. You're right. We can't have a, a just win-only situation for the wealthy and losses across the board for the working class. The race to the bottom mentality, it isn't even just in labor. It's also in our democracy. Look at the way China has uh, caused the MBA and Blizzard to trip over themselves to be less democratic in the way they do free speech because they want to keep access to that Chinese market going. They want to keep getting that Chinese money. So they already have sold out democracy. These supposedly American companies that the whole idea of capitalism is supposed to protect, the whole idea of capitalism is that freedom is good, 
Well, it turns out neoliberalism and capitalism destroy freedom. They destroy democracy. Freedom of speech falls away when it's not profitable. Freedom of speech is expensive. See? You don't want to have freedom of speech because it might cost you money. And so, again, this is the Obama lie. And it's just interesting to me. And again, maybe it's because this individual is predisposed to hate Obama that that kind of uh, thought process cropped up. But I find that to be an interesting observation because there is a through line between guys like Blair and guys like Obama and guys like Bush, frankly. They're all cut from the same vein of allowing corporations to basically rule themselves as private fiefdoms over their workers. That is going to end under a Bernie Sanders presidency. Obama, you're canceled. Like, you're done. You want to stand in the way of the progressive left, that's fine. We're going to knock you out of the way. Again, metaphorically, so I don't get banned from Twitter. We're going to knock you out of the way and keep moving forward as a society. You are not going to stop our progress just because you, what, your rich friends, you and your rich friends are going to lose out? You're not going to have as much money? Like, screw you, man. People need health care. People are dying. Like, I, I just... The audacity of somebody to stand in the way... The man who said hope and change is now nope and disdain. That's what everyone's saying. So, Yellow Vest America, at least, is saying that. I highly recommend you subscribe to his channel. But, uh, on YouTube. Uh, at, uh, America Vest. Uh, on Twitter. Uh, but, uh... Yeah, I... I... I I don't know what else to say here. Uh, Obama, fuck you. Uh, Moving on to another section that hopefully won't get me as angry. So we're going to do that that clip from the Majority Report, actually. I think that, you know, this will be a nice way to put a bow in it. We'll circle back around to, to Pete Buttigieg, because as I said, this was going to be dedicated to him. I was also going to compare it to Bernie. So that'll be in the second part of this segment. But for the first part... Uh, we're going to do this clip from the Majority Report to show you why Pete Buttigieg really is the continuation of Obama and Blair. I think this clip is actually super appropriate, given how Obama keeps sticking his head up and trying to squash the progressive left movement. So uh, here's Michael Brooks hosting, and he is consistently the the leftiest voice on that show. Uh, well, I guess you could say Jamie, but, you know, uh, personally, I think Michael has a better strategic outlook. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, here we go. Uh, let's do uh, another very damning. Pete Buttigieg is like the Lib Dems of the United States. I've decided. To, I think we all agreed. And did everybody basically agree in Philadelphia that Pete's Pete, the worst? Pete's the worst. He's Pete's absolutely worse than Biden. Literally, not a candidate up there I wouldn't vote for over Pete. I couldn't think of. Because I, because, and and this is serious because it's not just, it's one, as Crystal Ball pointed out, there's something just so devastatingly depressing about somebody so young repeating so much pablum and bullshit. But it's also that, look, if we take some horrifying, depressing scenario like Joe Biden, the, it is a, it is anything besides Bernie's a setback, if we're being real. And then it's just a degree of setback. But Pete Buttigieg represents generations defining reassertion of failed hegemony uh, and failed ideas. And I think that this is really important. I mean, this clip is from 2011. And these clips are not, you know, Pete Buttigieg's record on race 
is not the product of somebody who didn't use woke terminology or needs to be educated on certain policy sets. This is somebody who actually has been involved in issues with regards to race, policing, gentrification, and here as an attitude on education that show that he uh, clearly, sincerely, and horrifyingly wrongly diagnosed things. This is Pete Buttigieg from 2011. You know, the kids need to see evidence that education is going to work for them. Right. You so go. you see a lot of parts of That's town part of the motivation. Where, yeah, because you're, you're motivated because you, you believe that at the end of your educational process, there's a reward, there's a stable life, there's a job. And there are a lot of kids, especially the lower income minority neighborhoods, who literally just haven't seen it work. Uh, there isn't somebody they know personally and I think that's uh, who testifies to the value of education. So, yeah, you bet. You know, the kids need to. So let's just be really clear, because I, I tweeted this out and I saw some people still get. I mean, it, it's amazing, I, honestly, that some people could be following me and still be so delusional. He is speaking about people. And I don't I mean, it's a very you know, I don't know what the broader context of this question is. So I won't make it, you know, let's say people from any community that are experiencing poverty and lack of social mobility. Right. Let's say that's who he's speaking to. I would be shocked if it wasn't. I mean, this discourse was normal racialized uh, across the board. I just heard a clip of Sam Harris saying something like this, the other, like asking a guy if, you know, doing it well at school was acting white or something. So the point is, is that the reason that people are having trouble at school and having trouble moving up a ladder is because the entire economic and political deck is stacked against them on a material level, not because they don't have positive role models. And by the way, not because also you don't go to a very wide variety of circumstances and background and you don't actually meet incredibly well-read, highly educated people because this is a whole other subtext and barely subtext that we're confusing testing and accreditation with intellectual acumen. They're absolutely, they might have overlap in some cases, but they're absolutely not the same thing. And secondly, and thirdly, education does not solve poverty. Poverty is a resource and distributional problem. And this is a scam that conservatives and neoliberals have been running for decades, which is that we can deindustrialize, we can totally hack the safety net. We can have no public provisions for housing and healthcare that are real substantive and, and sustainable. We can redline people. We can racially discriminate against them. We can box in resources. And then all we need is, well, not, and then of course we need to terrorize the teachers and the teachers unions, but we just need somebody to see somebody from their neighborhood, get educated and do well. I'll tell you this. I have, I know for a fact that you can hear countless stories of people from different backgrounds saying, I actually do know X, Y, or Z person who did do quote unquote, all of the right things you're supposed to do. They did get degrees. They did do this. And now they're basically just swimming in debt. Yep. Yeah, that's mainly that the upshot number. That's by far the larger number. And then the last point really quick too, is like, what kind of disgusting system do we have to be in that when you finally do meet, I mean, if you go to a private college or an Ivy League campus or even some good state university campuses, you will meet people who are like I'm upper middle class, usually white, not always, but always upper middle class, if not rich. 
and they're normal people. They're not, they're not dumb. They're not brilliant. And they're there. And there's a lot of them there. And they work and they live in certain neighborhoods and they got paid. Uh, they got trained in certain ways to take certain tests and they got certain, uh, you know, recommendations. And then you will meet somebody from, you know, like uh, Appalachia or an inner city or somewhere like that is not racially geographically represented. And you'll meet them and you're like, oh, that person is a fucking genius usually and also lucked out. Because they had one guidance counselor or like literally had absolutely astoundingly above average talent and then had several lucky breaks. So basically all this is doing is, I mean, it sounds like boring, stupid pablum, but really what it is, is systemic and aggressive victim blaming. And there's nothing in this guy's record that I have seen that would attest otherwise to any other policy views. Now, look, that's a 25 second clip. So maybe the rest of the debate will come out and he'll say, we need to get jobs. We need to get healthcare. We need to deal with policing. We need to deal with racism. This is very much something that you need to sort of add in today's world because there's a million different clips floating around of people. But that one discrete clip, he said what he said. And that is a destructive myth in that 25 seconds, unless it was immediately preceded by, I would be a fucking McKinsey asshole to say. Yeah, it's dangerous. And I, I don't know if Pete Buttigieg really has any beliefs to speak of because he has pivoted around so much and shown himself to have no inner core. But if there's anything he sincerely believes in, it's probably the American meritocracy because he is a child of privilege who jumped through the hoops and took the tests and everything is set up to convince these people, oh, now you've earned the right to run the world. Right. Like I've been through the gauntlet. I know exactly how it works and what it's like. And it really does. It can trick you because you're like, oh, yeah, I'm working really hard. Therefore, I must deserve this. Right. There's more lines of evidence that Pete Buttigieg is a racist than that black people don't support him because they're homophobic. Well, indeed, without a doubt. So Anchor went ahead and deleted everything I just spoke about. So we're going to try this again. Uh, so the reason why that clip is so telling is because it showcases the meritocracy's fixation on education and how this idea that the one thing holding back the poor of this country is not having a role model to go out and basically cheerlead them through college and tell them that they can do it and that that's the one thing that is causing systemic poverty, not like a shortage of jobs, for instance, not like a shrinking labor market that is just being reduced. You know, I mean, whether or not it can theoretically hit zero is a matter of debate, I think. Uh, I personally uh, think that the real debate is not whether or not it will uh, be, whether or not it will happen, but when it will happen, uh, because the debate is not whether or not a human is better than a robot. The debate is about whether or not a human and a robot can be told apart, whether or not you can tell the difference. If you can get the robot to be almost as good as the person, you've pretty much nailed it at that point. Because then the cost is also zero. Like that's the other part is that you don't have to pay the robot anything. You know, the the human person you do have to pay. You have to give them vacation days. You have to give them health care, for instance. 
so the idea that people would not be replaced with robots at the drop of a hat under a neoliberal model is absurd. They already ship their jobs to the lowest possible uh, laborer they can afford, like as, as low as it'll go. If they can send it to India or Indonesia or China, it doesn't matter. They will send the job away. And if they could give it to robots, they would, because then they wouldn't have to pay them anything. It would be pennies on the dollar for electricity. So the idea that automation will not eliminate large swaths of the job market, I think, is, is foolhardy. But the answer Michael Brooks and others give to this is, no, we need to have laws to prevent that. Whereas I say, no, it should be a good thing that we've reduced the need for work and that people can just live their lives and practice some skill, learn a language, travel, or get an education, as indeed uh, we should. But why is this not possible? Like, well, it's because it's because education is tied to jobs, if, if you're, you're seeing what I'm putting down here. Uh, education should not be a jobs program. It has a different motivation to it than getting a job. That's not the goal. The goal of an education is to learn. It's to advance yourself in some way. The idea that it should then at the end have some sort of payday is a recent invention of the meritocracy because in the 80s and 90s, they were really, really ramping this up, this idea of work smarter, not harder, as a way to justify doing less for the laborers, the hard workers. They were trying to sell to the American people, if you just go to college, you'll get a great job, make lots of money, and then your life will be happy, which is just not the case. Not only is your life not happy with more money, most people end up with debt. That's what people get, or they fail out of college altogether. They never make it into college because they don't have the money in the first place. So I think the problem is twofold. The problem is that Yes, we should have free college. I agree with that because I don't think anybody should be told it's too expensive for you to learn. Whether or not you want to learn should be up to you. And this is the thing is that it should also not be a jobs program. People should not feel pressured to go to college just so that they can survive. That's absurd. That's crazy that the two things have been interlinked. If you want to get an education, great. Go for that purpose. You want to see scholastics overall improve, you need to change the incentive structure. You need to change the importance of things. Learning, as opposed to thinking about your career. It should not be a place you go to rub elbows. That should not be the purpose of the university. It should not be a political game that you do to make connections, and it should not be tied to some payout at the end of it based on your performance, and often not on your performance, based on things that you don't control, you know, just on good fortune, what school you went to, whether or not your father and some other guy's father were friends, you know, it, it, it's, it's a gross uh, hobnob club uh, for the elite, and they use it as an excuse for why they do nothing for the workers of this country. And you see it with Pete Buttigieg. Right here in, a, in this segment, he explains to you what his philosophy on this is. And Obama has explained what his philosophy on this is. And Bill Clinton did when he was selling to the working class that those jobs at the factory are never coming back. We need re-education programs so you can get the education you need to be competitive. Bullshit. All of it was bullshit. It didn't work. It was a way to sell your jobs overseas. And again, they will replace it with a form of automation as soon as that becomes available. Which is why I don't think automation is the problem. I think that the neoliberalism is the problem. I think that the ownership of all of the businesses and capital in the hands of so few is the problem. And what we should do is democratize that and distribute it amongst the population in the form of a dividend. If we want to nationalize all of our industries like the way they do in Alaska with the oil industry, great. Nationalize it. 
uh, that would be a great way to then have, you know, the production to draw from and to put all resources underneath of the democratic institutions we control, as opposed to the undemocratic institution of a private corporation, which is entirely in the hands of the shareholders. Uh, we could take our natural resources back for ourselves, our production back for ourselves. And if we end up replacing it with automation, great. We're only giving ourselves less work to do. We're not reducing any of the benefit to us as a society which currently it would reduce the benefit to us because we use labor as a means of survival. You are only allowed to live in this world if you produce something for somebody, if you are owned or an owner. That idea is anathema to Bernie Sanders. And I'm about to play you a clip of Senator Sanders so you can hear it for yourself, the difference in spirit that this kind of man has to uh, people like Pete Buttigieg and Barack Obama and Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the whole neoliberal foundation. Take a listen. Let me say a, a word about myself. <clears throat> Unusual as it may seem. <laughs> uh, I am the son of an immigrant, young man of 17, who came to this country without a nickel in his pocket. I have some sense of the immigrant experience. I will stand with the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. At the age of 21, as a member of a civil rights group at the University of Chicago, I was arrested, spent the night in jail, and I have been committed to the fight against all forms of discrimination, racial discrimination, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and religious bigotry. I will lead an administration that will look like America, will end the divisiveness brought by Trump and bring us together. During this campaign, I am proud to say that I have received more campaign contributions than any candidate at this point in an election in American history, over 4 million contributions, averaging $18 a piece. If you want to be part of a movement that is not only going to beat Trump, but transform America, that doesn't have a super PAC, doesn't do fundraisers at wealthy people's homes, please join us at BernieSanders.com. Thank you. And so, I, I mean, that clip from Bernie, by the way, I, I borrowed that from the Rational National. Thank you for that, David Dole. Uh, but that clip uh, of Bernie is a stark contrast with what we've seen out of Pete Buttigieg, who is a bigoted racist who fired a black police chief after colluding with white nationalists. Uh, he is, in fact, a meritocracy-believing elitist prick uh, who just wants to screw the poor and would happily villainize the wall and mentions border security, frankly, which is, uh, again, that is a, a dog whistle to the right wing. Uh, this is the kind of person he is, whereas Bernie, by the way, coming out and defending the immigrants. He has no problem saying that he will stand with the dreamers. He has no problem showing solidarity with the people of Brazil. Uh, when uh, J.R. Bolsonaro's corrupt Lava Jato investigation fell flat on its face uh, and Lula da Silva was freed. Like, he has no problem mentioning that the coup in Bolivia is a coup. He's fine doing all of that. And oh, by the way, he stands with the working person in America. Like, this is what he's about. He wants America to be more unionized. He wants America, part of one of his plans is to do what I mentioned earlier, which is to have workers have more of a say in the corporations. Like, to have them own it. Like, co-ops, that is the way of the future. 
is for us to own the actual businesses we work in and to democratize power that way. And this person stands up and proudly says that he will stand against all forms of hatred and bigotry and that what we need to do to defeat Trump is not just replace him with another Pete Buttigieg or another Barack Obama or another Bill Clinton or another Al Gore or any of the other long list of Hillary Clinton, you know, any of the long list of people that have bought into this nonsense lie that they are better than the rest of us, the elitist lie, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, that because of their their pedigree, they deserve to have a good life and you do not. That's bullshit. I know it. And Bernie knows it. And I'm so proud and humbled to support his campaign. And I highly recommend you do calls for him as I've been doing. Just reach out to any old stranger and tell them like what I just told you. That he is different from the other people in this race. He does not represent the same kind of systematic oppression that so many people in this race represent. Or a continuation of failed policies. He will change the world. And I'm proud to stand with him. Thank you for tuning into Sociable Socialism. This has been a great, great episode, I think. And uh, fuck you, Pete Buttigieg. You're going to lose. Good night.